Hi everyone, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo, I'm the author of the film review website Quipster.net. I invite you to check out over 4,000 of my written reviews there anytime at Quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. I also want to remind you that I do a film review podcast that covers brand new movies, very similar to this one. Except without a lot of the historical aspects because there are new movies. You can search for the Quipster Film Review Podcast wherever you're listening to this. Just remember that Quipster is spelled with a W instead of a U. Today we're going to be continuing on. If you haven't been listening to the last few episodes, you probably should. It is a continuation of the Nightmare on Elm Street series. We're up to A Nightmare on Elm Street 5, The Dream Child. It came out in 1989. It is a film that features Lisa Wilcox and Robert Englund. The supporting cast includes Kelly Jo Minter, Danny Hassel, Erica Anderson, Joe Seeley, and Nick Melly. The director is Stephen Hopkins this time out. Five films, five different directors in the series so far, and the screenplay credited to Leslie Bohem, although there were quite a few other people who contributed to the screenplay over several revisions. The Dream Child here picks up where the previous one left off, at least about a year later, Alice, who we were introduced to in the fourth installment, The Dream Master, she's just graduating high school. She's looking forward to a future after she had this harrowing experience that ultimately resulted in her, at the end of the film, vanquishing Freddy Krueger. Now, Alice is still addled with the guilt due to being the focal point, at least in that film, that had led to those around her, her friends, her family members, into the nightmare realm to succumb to their untimely and horrific deaths. So after consummating her relationship with her hunky boyfriend, Daniel, who's returning here from part four as well, Alice ends up with child. She begins to experience that familiar, eerie feeling that Freddy has found his way back to Elm Street somehow. And that portal is actually within her womb. <laughs> Quite a story here. Even with her being awake, the fetus is still asleep most of the time and dreaming. So Freddy is able to use those dreams from the fetus to manifest himself into Alice's thoughts and those of her friends. And that leads them to have to confront certain doom among them all. More to the story than that, it's definitely an interesting film from a plot standpoint. The Dream Child still is a major step down in the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. It reduces the amount of fun and intrigue that we've generally gotten to in the series, even among the weaker entries. It was still at least fun to watch, but that sense of fun is replaced here with some pretty depressing flashbacks that involve a nun, Freddy's mother, being viciously raped by a hundred insane inmates of this asylum, and then a lot of impalable notions involving the invasion of a teenage girl's womb by the demon-like entity that was created by that rape. Although other films have referred to Freddy's origin, they did wisely keep it only as a horrific notion and did not make the mistake of forcing us to observe this event and continuously go back into that sordid and wretched scenario and then expect us to be titillated by the shallow formula slasher movie antics on display in the present tense. This is the fifth film in the series. 
As I mentioned, the fifth new director, Stephen Hopkins here taking the helm of the ambitious but inconsistent franchise for one turn. Hopkins was known primarily before this in the Australian film industry. He had one film under his belt as a director there. It was an obscure slasher film called Dangerous Game, which came out in 1987 to a little bit of buzz. It didn't quite pan out commercially. Hopkins would get some commercial projects after A Nightmare on Elm Street 5. He would direct a bit more high-profile Hollywood efforts throughout the 1990s, most notably horror-tinged thrillers like Predator 2 in 1990, Judgment Night, The Ghost in the Darkness, as well as the much-maligned attempt to port an old series to the big screen from TV, That was Lost in Space. That was a critical lambasting that that film took, even though I have a little bit of tolerance for that one still. Now, as with the prior entry, the production was rushed in order to get the film into theaters around the same time the following year in August of 1989. Hopkins only had two months window from start to finish from when he took over the project, and that caused quality control issues that resulted in the inability to make sure that the story was making some sort of sense as they progressed, especially because the script underwent extensive revisions by three separate teams who completely upended what the prior writers had done. Interestingly enough, Stephen King had originally been sought out to handle the screenplay chores. He was not interested, and comic book giant Frank Miller also passed in the opportunity kind of a coincidence here. Stephen King wrote It, of course, and that book, which came out, I think, in 1986, was very similar in certain respects to the Nightmare on Elm Street series. And the movie It that came out in 2017 actually refers back to A Nightmare on Elm Street 5, The Dream Master, because it was set in 1989. And it was on the marquee display at the theater in the town and also contributes to at least one plot point within that movie. Now, at this point in the series, the fans of A Nightmare on Elm Street obviously expect that there will be vivid and nightmarish dream sequences, and the dream child, unfortunately, has the least memorable among them. The best among them involves this comic book fan who's also an artist who gets sucked into his comic that ends up being controlled by Freddy, but given that we don't particularly care about that character, in fact, he's arguably the most annoying among all of the characters, there's really little for us to do but admire some of the animated effects that are involved in the scene. It reminded me a little bit of the video for Take On Me by AHA in the way that it kind of shades over the live action sequences with animated There's also a sequence that borrows from the topsy-turvy stairs found in M.C. Escher's famous lithograph print called Relativity. That's the one with all of the upside-down and right-side-up stairs that might have come off as inspired had it not already been done in nearly identical ways a few years before in Jim Henson's Labyrinth. And that included a baby and a nemesis and a teenage girl. It absolutely echoes, if not out-and-out rips off, Labyrinth in that respect. Reportedly, the MPAA had slapped the Dream Child with an X rating due to the graphic nature of a few scenes that were subsequently trimmed down before the release to get the R rating. One involves self-cannibalism as this end to the life of one of the teenagers. There's also a beheading that was in the film previously. And another more intense extended version of a sequence that involves a teenager having his body fused in a very grisly fashion with a motorcycle he's riding. That one went on for minutes instead of seconds as it does in the R-rated cut. The idea for The Dream Child itself had come from the makers observing that those who made the series a success throughout the 1980s were now entering into adulthood and would find it even scarier to encounter nightmares that feed on their own anxieties as somebody entering into adulthood. Babies, parenthood, drinking, driving, future careers, making tough choices about what to do about it all, all of those anxieties ended up resulting in The Dream Child. 
Now, Freddy Krueger's appearance has been slightly different from movie to movie in terms of makeup applied, depending on who is doing the makeup and who is doing the directing. But his look here feels the most off, I think, in the series, as does his personality, which is nearly non-existent, except as this creature to come out and say, booga booga. Anglin does get to make an appearance here without his makeup, playing one of the hundred maniacs who raped the nun named Amanda Kruger to create the abomination called Freddy Kruger. And one presumes that this character was the actual father, given the striking resemblance here. Lisa Wilcox, as the star of the film, she gets her time to continue shining as the heroine with this emotional performance as Alice yet again, though the film's greatest liability is that her character remains the only one that we actually care about in terms of whether she may live or die by the end. The supporting cast around her seem to be cast for at least a certain look or a certain vibe that they evoke, but none of those actors really get to stand out in terms of their performances because their characters are given only one trait to define them as to how their nightmare sequence will go. The comic book nerd is going to end up in a comic book. The girl who likes to swim is going to meet her fate at the swimming pool. The school beauty with modeling aspirations can't really eat to spoil her figure. She's going to have a food-related nightmare. The formula goes on and on. You see where it's going to go. There are attempts here to have heartwarming or even heart-rending moments. They end up falling flat due to the lackluster characterizations here. Freddy's tragic backstory is given short shrift, and given the fact that Freddy is pure evil, it's kind of counterproductive to the series to give us this much backstory to try to lend a certain sympathy to his plight. Doesn't really work out for the film. Alice's reconciling with her alcoholic father, as well as the family of Alice stepping forward as caretakers to her future son, might have worked if we were given much more exploration into their relationships before these developments occur. The film also introduces a young boy named Jacob who is meant here to represent Alice's son in the future, yet he's manifesting himself around her, and I guess it's to give a proper face to her unborn child, but the scenes that are involving Jacob still lack the emotional weight that the film seems to be going for, and therefore they bog down the entire movie with unnecessary and conceptually disheartening exposition on Freddy's desire to be reborn within Jacob by feeding him the souls of his victims. When we get to the ending of the film, it's pretty abrupt. It's not really satisfying at all. It was not the original ending that they had in mind. It was shot at the last minute, and it really does feel like it. And compounding the problems with the ending is right when you get to the ending, we kick to the final credits and then the use of Cool Mo D's Let's Go, which is a great song, don't get me wrong, I love that song, but it has nothing at all to do with the movie. It's entirely meant to be a diss record in which Kumo D continues his battle with LL Cool J on wax after his How You Like Me Now and LL's response Jack the Ripper. Jive Records, who were known primarily at that time for their hip-hop performance primarily, although they had a variety of different acts, they provide the soundtrack here. Although the music is barely spotlighted within the film, except for Let's Go at the end credits. And whereas the third and fourth entries in the Nightmare on Elm Street series had used their soundtracks not only as ways to market their films, but to give their movies a very spunky attitude on top of it. The Dream Child's collection of songs from Jive Records is a complete afterthought, and yet another missed opportunity to make the film stick and be fun. Only the song Bring Your Daughter to the Slaughter, which was performed by Iron Maiden lead singer Bruce Dickinson, would prove to be ultimately notable, primarily because it actually became a number one hit the following year in the UK when it appeared on an actual Iron Maiden album called No Prayer for the Dying. So that sticks out as memorable, even though he did it as a solo project here. 
And beyond all of this, the film garnered a bit of backlash in 1989, not only due to the violent content within the series as a whole that led up to it, but due to its notions of a fetus being the conduit for bringing evil to the world, which turned off a lot of viewers. And while those on both sides of the abortion issue felt that the film seemed to be sending the wrong message to their particular political ends, the film ended up proving as a whole, to be unpalatable to even those who are on board for the first four entries because it's missing a good deal of the humor, a lot of the sense of campy fun is gone, and there used to be much more focus on the victims and their backstories. Here, it's replaced by a lot of gothic dreamscapes, some repulsive story elements, as I've mentioned, gruesome deaths really kind of will make a lot of people recoil, even those who are a bit inured to this kind of thing, and a very morbid and dour mood that exists throughout the film. The Dream Child, unfortunately for the filmmakers, it would end up being the least successful in the series up to that point. It fell out of the top 10 after a mere two weeks of release. And though it was technically successful, it did earn about $22 million on a budget of about $8 million. That, nevertheless, was less than half the take of the prior two entries. And given that there was such a dreary tone to the film series at that point to try to build upon, it led the makers of the Nightmare on Elm Street series to think that perhaps diminishing returns were going to be the norm. And that resulted in the next entry, Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare, being the end to this particular strain of Freddy's films. So in a sense, the series between part five and part six could be seen as literally going from cradle to the grave within its final two chapters. So unfortunately, as you can tell from this review, I am really not a fan of A Nightmare on Elm Street 5, The Dream Child, and I can only really give it one and a half stars out of four. One and a half stars on my scale means I do think it's a pretty poor movie and not one I would recommend to just about anybody except for hardcore Freddy Krueger, Nightmare on Elm Street completists who just love anything and everything that has to do with Freddy. You're going to get the benefit of this, and I think most people who are fans of the series consider this pretty inferior stuff, at least to the first four entries. I do not want to sit through A Nightmare on Elm Street 5 again. This is my second time watching it. The first time I watched it at a drive-in with a double feature with the eighth Friday the 13th film called Jason Takes Manhattan. I considered that at the time the worst one-two punch of films that I had ever gone to see at a drive-in. I am not a fan. I didn't remember this film, but you know, most films you see at the drive-in, you end up being distracted by a lot of other things. So one and a half stars is the best I can give A Nightmare on Elm Street, The Dream Child. Of course, the next entry called Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare, actually was released in 1991. I'm doing a film review show about the 1980s, but I've made some exceptions. I've reviewed films from the 70s like Star Wars and Superman. I've actually done a 1990 film, I believe, with Back to the Future Part 3. I'm going to make an exception here as well. The next episode of Around the World in 80s Movies will be on Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare, the sixth and final in this strain of the Nightmare on Elm Street series, and that will be coming up next week. Until next time, thanks everyone for joining me for this review and continuing our journey around the world in 80s movies. Yes, 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 yes.